Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so thrilled to be joined here today by Sophia Sinclair. She was born and raised in Montego Bay, Jamaica. She's the author of the poetry collection Cannibal, which was the winner of a Whiting Writers Award, the American Academy of Arts and Letters Metcalf Award in Literature, the OCM Bocas Prize for Caribbean Poetry, and the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. And she was also nominated for a bunch of things that I will not include now, but you get the picture. Um, her extraordinary debut memoir is called How to Say Babylon. Welcome, Sophia. Hi, Maris. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Um, I, I was trying to think about where, where to start. And I'm going to start with me being the perfect kind of American idiot who <laughs> has seen many college dorms with many a Bob Marley poster on them. Yes. <laughs> and so I was really surprised in reading your memoir, I'm going to quote you to you, by the 90s you say, the Rastafari, though still shunned and outcast by their own people, became the living mascots and main cultural export of Jamaican tourism that seems like a really lonely place to be. Yes. It, I mean, it was. And, um, you know, I kind of knew when I was thinking about writing the book, um, you know, I'd already kind of been to college in the U.S. <laughs> and had been asked, you know, all of the questions that you could imagine somebody mm -hmm. from Jamaica being asked. Um, and realized just how much, um, I don't know, how misunderstood um, Rastafari culture and history was um, globally, even though it, it holds this large space in sort of the global imagination, right? Um, but in Jamaica, uh, most people don't know that the Rastafari are historically a persecuted minority, that... Um, you know, most Rastafari um, were from the beginning of the movement in the early 1930s were kicked out of their homes. They were like shunned by their families. They were targeted by the government, by the police. Um, you know, we had we even had a, a prime minister in the 60s that sent the army after um, after Rastafari and said, bring me all Rastas dead and alive. And, um, you know, and this kind of uh, historical persecution of, of Rastafari in Jamaica continued this way um, when my siblings and I were born. Um, and so, you know, we were the only Rasta children in school. We were among the first Rastafari children to even integrate public schools in Jamaica. Um, you know, Rastafari children were not allowed before then. And so wherever we went, we were kind of like an oddity, even in Jamaica. Even you know, in Jamaica. I, in Jamaica, I even have Jamaican friends who um, don't know much of anything about the Rastafari movement. And so growing up, you know, we were like the only ones at school, the only ones at the beach, the only Rasta children wherever we went. Um, and so this made for a very unique upbringing and one that people might not have realized um, that that's what it would be like growing up um, Rastafari in Jamaica. And so that was kind of, you know, the root of where I began with the book. 
Yeah. And another thing you write a bit later in the book, um, which is something that you, of course, articulated later in your life, but giving the background of, of how your family grew up, you say every Rastaman was the godhead in his household. And so your father made the rules. He yes. was the authority. And, he was the uh, authority. Yeah, he was the grand authority, um, which I think is probably another surprising thing for most people when they think about Rastafari. I think they kind of only know one representation of it. I think when they think of, <laughs> when most people think of Rastafari, they think of the men, they probably think of one particular man. And, you know, most people don't really know what a Rasta woman's life is like or a young girl who's growing up in Rastafari. What is her life like? Um, and the fact that there is no sort of scripture or written book or like guide guidebook of tenets um, that is uniform across all Rasta brethren or, you know, Rasta families. Um, and most of the time, it it really is just the head of the household, the Rasta man, the father figure who kind of divines, you know, what is good, what's bad, who is holy, who is heathen, you know. Um, and and my father held this large space in 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 our household and in our family's lives he was bigger than the sun and and you know took up as much of that room and and decided when the sun shone on you and when it did not um and so yes you know he he was um a disciplinarian and authoritarian and he kind of adhered to one of the stricter sects of rastafari which um, kind of dictated what we ate, you know, who we talked to, how my sisters and my mother and I dressed, you know, women were not allowed to, there were lots of rules for, yeah. for the women in particular, uh, which is kind of not a big surprise when you think about a lot of religions and a lot of particularly fundamental um, branches of religions. Um, and so Rastafari was no different. It wasn't like all, you know, one love. <laughs> it was, it, it was uh, interesting for for the women who were mostly unseen and not really um, given consideration and to hold space in the Rastafari movement. So, um, yeah, yeah, the women, my sisters and I, we had to cover our arms and our knees. We had to, um, we couldn't wear. The idea was that we were supposed to be pure and humble and obedient and that we had to express that outwardly by, um, you know, throwing off any trappings of vanity or Babylon, um, which is, you know, the Rastafari's term for anything that is, they believe is of the wicked Western world, anything that's corrupt or immoral or, you know, potentially bad, they call yeah. Babylon. Yeah, it, it's so interesting to me that this obsession with purity is fundamentally the same across almost every religion you can possibly imagine. And it's it's interesting to think about how, you know, the British ruled uh, Jamaica until the 60s. And so most of the country is Christian and still 
reproductive rights are very limited there to say the least and um there there is a culture of of victim blaming and um a, a, across different you know it seems it seems like a, a difficult place to be a young woman it was it was because um you know when you're told that your silence is your silence is the the highest virtue a woman could have being pliant um and not having any opinions and also that this idea that you know my body was more susceptible to corruption because it was quote unquote unclean um because uh this this idea that because women menstruate there's a, a lot of um Rasta brethren who believe that makes them unclean. There's even a sect that um, has their women sequester. Women have to sequester themselves on their on their periods because and and cannot touch anything in the kitchen because they're believed to be unclean. And so, you know, from from an early age, hearing this idea of unclean and having these ideas of something being different about my body in a way that was wrong that was also outside of my control kind of obsessed me for a long time or kind of marked the way that I thought about myself and this I and wanting to be pure wanting to be clean for my father um not knowing of course that you know it was already a fixed immorality because of my womanhood um and that was difficult you know um this this voicelessness was never I was always someone who was questioning the you know questioning everything and so that was a struggle for me pretty early on and then when I started to grow older and I saw this kind of the roads diverging between me and my brother um you know when I turned nine years old my father was like okay you'll never wear pants again mm -hmm. you will never you know and and suddenly all these rules were kind of shifting and my brother and I were so close and I was like, wait, 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 hold on. What's happening? Like, why is this happening? Um, and, you know, I just I began to question all of that. You even begin the book with with acknowledging that this kind of girlhood also affected your parents and your grandparents. And you come from a line of, well, generational trauma. So much of it is is seems to be built around the idea that um, getting pregnant very very young is is solely the um, work of of a young woman. Yes, but you know it was interesting also in my household because it was all getting pregnant was also the thing that my father seemed most concerned about for my sisters and I you know sure. and so this idea of purity also stemmed to that so it was this kind of like strange of like this strange strange line to walk of like don't ever get pregnant as a teenager but when the right time comes then you must be then you have to <laughs> then you must be the childbearer. I no, I didn't. I never knew when that time would be in it, and you know, I never <laughs> stayed around to find out. Um, but you know, like we were saying before, um, 
like most religions and and those that also go towards you know the fundamental or militant the autonomy of the woman seems to be at the root of the of what needs to be controlled what needs to be tamed you know what needs to be molded and so this was no different um and this was how i my sisters and i grew up and kind of had to say well no that's i don't think that is a path meant for me or that is who i am you know and having then to decide you know like you say at the beginning i kind of look into the face of the future okay if i continue on this road like who would i be who would she be um and is that the woman that i want to become you know and it's not a spoiler to say no <laughs> seems like the answer is no no um <laughs> but sophia i we'll get to your siblings and your mother because i think Yours were the first acknowledgments I've ever read that made me cry. Um, but even in your depiction of your father, in which you document so many of the ways he hurt you, you do it with so much love. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that and and, and how, how to keep that balance in the writing of a book. Yes. You know, I really... The, the only way I could do it was to have a lot of distance between the writing of the book and what happened. Um, because there was a, a moment, I, I first began thinking about writing this book ten about 10 or 11 years ago, um, when I first began my, uh, I'd left Jamaica and I came here to do my, um, my master's at UVA in Virginia, lived in Charlottesville. And I began to think about um, writing this book but the you know i was still so i think i was still processing everything that was happening and it it would have been a much different book then if i'd written it and i knew once i began that it, one i could not there was some of it that i just was not capable of approaching then on the page in a way that i wanted to and then also that i didn't want to write a book that was written from a place of hurt like yes the hurt existed and happened and it, it shaped my life and my family's lives and it, and it shaped my relationship with my father but I did wonder if there was some other way to write the book you know and um before this I wouldn't say I was a very particularly forgiving person but over <laughs> the course of, of writing the book it's kind of thinking through our lives and having to start at the at the very beginning you know, writing how my father came to Rastafari, why he chose this life for himself and for us. For me, I had to understand him in a way that needed nuance. I needed to give him more grace than I'd ever given him before. Um, and I had to sit down and I, I had to ask him, why? Why did you choose this path? And for the first time, you know, we kind of talked about his own childhood, his own adolescence, um, you know, his mother kicking him out of the house because he um, decided to walk the path of Rastafari. And for the first time, I began to understand my father in a different way than I'd ever thought about him. You know, like I said before, for most of my life, he loomed so large. He almost was not 
even a real person. He really was this like authoritarian Godhead figure. I never thought about his humanity um, until I sat down to write the book. Um, and because I did it chronologically and I wrote the chapters with him and his <laughs> and his um, his childhood first, then it was easier to actually talk to him. And then in the later chapters where I'm describing all of our hardships together and all of, you know, his anger and fury at me and his hurt um, directed toward me, th there were days I could not speak to him, you know, and in the writing of it, it was like reliving it all again. Um, but I ultimately wanted to write this book despite all the all the hurt and this all the different ways that trauma shapes you know my life and my family's life and even a kind of cultural trauma of of coming out of colonialism in Jamaica um which I think is very much at the root of everything I wanted if I could to look beyond that and to write from a place of hope the first time I really thought I could write the book or I wanted to write it was when I heard my niece was being born my brother was having a daughter and I began thinking about the next generation of girls entering our family what would their lives be like would it be the same as ours my sisters and I and I I really hoped that it wouldn't and I I wanted to write this book so that she could know where she came from and um you know all that happened before her but also for her and and other girls to know that whatever comes next, whatever future comes, that it will be theirs for the shaping. And so it was that kind of hope that I I wrote from eventually after many years of processing, therapy, distance. Sure. <laughs> Reading. Reading, yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about the actual how of how you wrote the book because you know, you have a very short and beautiful author's note in the beginning that makes very clear that these are your memories. They're not facts. Uh, some things may have changed. But as you say, you went year by year and you create this really vivid narrative. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about doing that. Sure. I love talking <laughs> about the, the crafting of the thing. Um yeah, so I had this vision of how I wanted the book to read. You know, um, I've read a, I read some memoirs before this, and I thought that a lot of how how they're constructed was well. Let's just get straight to the facts. Like this is what happened. This is where I was born. This is what happened, and that happened, and then that thing happened, and that happened. And I was like, okay, but I think I I want to write this in a way that is also um, using sort of the Caribbean landscape and our history and our own storytelling as a guide culturally of how, I'll tell you a story. First of all, no, none of our lives in the Caribbean are a straight line, right? It crests, crests and waves like the sea. We never tell you a story straight. We sit you down and tell you the story. We go round and round. We come back and turn around. And I also wanted the reading to feel almost like a novel that it is my life it is all true as I remember it as my siblings remember it and as my parents remember it so I it wasn't just my memories I also 
um, sort of interwove their memories to create this narrative um, in, in the places where I didn't remember or I needed to know how they uh, remembered it. Um, but I wanted it to read that way, that you could kind of feel what I was feeling and you could be immersed in my life, in this world, in the thick of Jamaican culture and landscape and inside a real Jamaican household, um, you know, in a way that most people might not have, have ever been before, you know, outside of this kind of postcard idea of, of what Jamaica is, or, you know, this idea of Jamaica being someone else's version of paradise. Um, and so I wrote this, the book, this is how I wanted it to, to read, because that's how I, that's, those are the books I find interesting. And so, yeah, I did a lot of um, interviews with my family and recorded them, particularly for the dialogue. Um, there's Rasta, um, Rastafari speak in a very particular way. Um, and I grew up kind of, I grew up understanding everything completely clearly the way my father speaks. Um, but to an outsider, it is quite, probably quite difficult to understand uh, when he speaks in Rasta vernacular. But what I found interesting was I had never written it down before. There is no lexicon or dictionary for how some of these words are spelt, how, like, what's the grammar? And so I would always be writing messages as I'm as I was writing I would like text my father text my brother like, how would you spell this you know is it I man is it I dash man or is it just I man? <laughs> you know I was like asking them all of these questions of how would you spell this is this definition that I'm giving correct you know if I'm defining this Rastafari principle is that correct and so there was a lot of things that I you know reached out, bug, bugged my family for, they're probably used to it at this point, <laughs> um, to make sure that the book was as close to our lives as possible, as close to how we spoke and felt and thought and dreamt as possible. That's so lovely. And one of the things that really stood out to me is that despite so much isolation of your childhood, you have three siblings and your what comes through is a real solidarity between you and your siblings. Um, wondering if you could tell me a little bit, not just about growing up together, but 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 creating together. Yes, you know, we were always very close and very close-knit. Um, I think because we were such outsiders when we went outside the gate of our house that it's it was only natural that we you know kind of created our own um world and our own kind of universe of imagination amongst each other we have our own kind of dictionary between us um i think as most siblings do but you know our mother our mother was really she had a a really big hand in how close we were and and how much we sort of gravitated toward, um, I don't know, nurturing the imagination as as a space of um, of love, 
and and hope and beauty, you know? And so she had always had us um, do these classes with her that she kind of created um, for teaching us. Like she created like our own extracurricular curriculum <laughs> as <laughs> we were growing up. And to us, this was really normal, but it, you know, as I'm older, I, I realized how much of a gift this was that she would make our, our, her own lists of books that we should read, that she would take us on these nature walks and teach us about the land. She would show me all the flowers that we saw, all the plants and insects that we saw. Like she rooted this love of nature in me and, and the way that I, um, as a poet, kind of think about my work and being sort of rooted in the natural world. That was the gift that my mother gave to me and my siblings. And um, yeah, you know, I think because of her, um, I would say we did become, or we were always so, so, so close. Um, I, and I love that you also, you describe them and you as a coven of overachievers. Yes, which, that's very true. <laughs> which is truly a testament to, to your mother's uh, teaching style. And even just like, it, it seems like what she did with nature for you, she also did with, with poetry, with, with oh, books yes. in general. She did. I mean, she, um, she was always like, bringing books for us. Sometimes I didn't know where she got them from. She would take books from the library. She um, she had a job when we were growing up and in, instead of getting a paycheck, she said she had a job at a bookstore where she taught her classes to the students of Montego Bay. And instead of getting her paycheck, she said, actually, like, instead of paying me Every weekend when I come here, can instead of paying me, can my children just choose all the books they want from the shelf? And I just remember like those days that we would go to the bookshop and pick the books from the shelves were the best days. It was just like Christmas. If we knew we don't celebrate Christmas. So <laughs> to me, it was like what I imagined Christmas would be like picking all these books off the shelf, but my mother always valued education. And I think because for her, it was also books and, and um, literature was the thing that um, always spoke to her and, and as a thing to expand her world and to sort of transform her world um, and poetry, she always loved. And she gave me this love of poetry because she would have me and my siblings memorize and recite poems. Like this was part of our education with her growing up. This was normal to us. We would like make our own songs. We would sing them. We had a family band where we like wrote our own songs and performed them around Jamaica about saving the environment. So we, <laughs> um, but yes, you know, my mom really gave us this love of 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 literature and of education. And, and it only expanded our world exponentially, even when it, it would seem like our world would be, you know, closed and cut off from the world because we had that. And we had our education of play with mom. It never did seem that the world was small. It always seemed that it was wide. 
as wide as we wanted it to be. Before I ask you for book recommendations, there's a scene towards the end of the book, and I don't think this is a spoiler, in which you read your poetry in front of your father for the first time, and and a poem very specifically about him. And now there's this whole book for your entire family to find themselves in. How, How has that been? It has been quite interesting. You know, I think that my family, they were always, you know, ever since I started writing poetry, I wrote about my family. I wrote about my mother and my father. And I've been publishing poetry since I was 16. So they kind of knew already that, okay, she's writing something. (laughs) who is it gonna be about like every time I sit down to write am I in it um (laughs) it was interesting because I think my parents would say oh my favorite one is that one it was always the one that they were in or they saw themselves in like when I was growing up um but yes writing this writing the memoir you know although I, I see it as an expansion of my poetry um but it it was it's also different in this way that there is no kind of poetic escape. There's no window of poetic escape through which I can climb and talk about something else over here. You know, I kind of have to stay there in the scene and I have to describe my family and how they spoke and how they thought and um what they did. and and that makes it very interesting. Um, most of my siblings kind of have dealt with our childhood in their own ways. And I have, um, tried to be very respectful of that, particularly in, um, their reading of the book. So, you know, one of my sisters, my middle sister, she said, you know, Safa, I don't think I can, I can read this. I'm not prepared to read this right now. Um, like she'd read um, my brother and and her, my brother and I were with her last year and he was very excited to read the book and he read like a passage out loud to us and my sister was very moved moved to tears um, and she said I, I don't think I can read this right now my mom similarly said she's taking her time with it I think I can't imagine what it's like. I'm glad I'm the writer of the family <laughs> because I I try to imagine like, oh my gosh. So if my brother wrote a book about me, like, oh my God, how would I feel? Um, but that's why I tried to include them as much as I could in the in the writing of it so that they wouldn't ever pick up the page and feel like what they saw there was not a true depiction of themselves. And they've all told me that the reason it's hard for them, some of them to read is because it, it it's so incredibly close to what happened and it it takes them back there um you know people might be very surprised to know that the person who was most excited to read this was my father (laughs) of all my family he is the one who asked me when can I read the book when can I get a copy can I get a copy um and and so I did I gave him a copy um and you know, the 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 Rasta Bredgen and Montego Bay have a group chat and they have been <laughs> talking about <laughs> me on the group chat and the, the way I've written about Rastafari. They're very pleased. And so my father likes to give me these um, 
reports about his group chat. And I'm just like, dad, please, I, that's nice. I don't need to know everything that <laughs> the group chat is saying. And also he had this impulse of when I first gave him the book, he called me and he was like, this is an emergency. And I was like, okay, what is it? He's like, um, can you change this thing where you said this, I was born here, but you should say I was born in the Victoria Jubilee Hospital. I was like, um, nope, I'm not <laughs> like, that's not, <laughs> this is, this is how it's written and it can't yeah. be changed, like to the minute details of the hospital, you know, and the time you were born and so on and so on. And I said, well, can we talk about the book when you're done reading it? And he said, okay. Um, and so I'm just kind of waiting. I told him it will be a hard read for you, but just read to the end. So, um, you know, everybody in my family has kind of approached it in their own way. Um, they have read the excerpt that appeared um, in the New Yorker. So they have read that because they had to be fact-checked like in a crazy way. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, they, they all wrote me and said it was really beautiful and that they're proud of me. And so that's all I can ask for, you know? Well, that's lovely. This, I mean, this book is so beautiful. Um, again, it's called How to Say Babylon by Sophia Sinclair. Sophia, before we go, please recommend some books for us. Yes. Um, let me talk about some poetry books. I uh, really love one of my favorite poetry books that came out this year is called The Ferguson Report, An Erasure by Nicole Seeley, um, which I, I I loved so much that I wrote about on Lit Hub. And so it's just an amazing, amazing book where she really, I think, redefines the genre of erasure. And she takes this Ferguson report, you know, this report that came out of violence and um, the killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, and really reshapes this document, not only to deal with the sort of cyclical violence in the US, but also to think beyond those frames and think toward a kind of future of possibility for Black people in America, a, a future in which this violence perhaps may not exist. And so the things that she's doing just with the form of erasure is amazing. Um, so love that. I also have just been raving about um, this novel, Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. Um, to anybody I could I could like tell, like you have to read this book, it's so good. Um, you know, the way that he's he he tackles this idea of um prison reform and um, also the sort of American desire for violence um, and televised violence and, and thinking it through in the sort of dystopian future in which those things collide, um, ultimately to, to, to talk about racial justice and, and different ways that we can think about um, rehabilitating instead of, you know, prison, I think is just incredible. 
Um, and the language itself, beyond the story being an amazing one, the language um, and the way that um, Nana tells the story while interweaving the sort of um, historical notes of the actual history of, um, you know, the injustices of the prisons in America is just amazing. So everybody should read this book, Chain Gang All-Stars. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, Sophia, thank you so much. How to Say Babylon, out now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.